Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Everybody and welcome back to the Moz Monthly Podcast. This is our first episode back after our summer hiatus, season three, episode four. Joining me today is none other than Dr. John Kramer. Dr. Kramer started uh, his career in EMS as an EMT for a local volunteer service right here in Michigan, and then spent the last 15 years of his career in federal service the most recent of those five, little over five, as the director of EMS in the office of EMS with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Dr. Kramer, uh, I believe recently you have returned home to your roots here in Michigan after retiring from NHTSA. Welcome home. Thank you, Angela. It is great to be back. We are thrilled to be back in Michigan. I'm glad you joined us. I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of things. Your work and your focus at NHTSA in the Office of EMS while you were there, where you see EMS going forward. And then we're going to talk about a special project of yours, I think, that is probably pulling some heartstrings, and that is the National EMS Museum. Is there any anything you want to start the conversation by telling our listeners before we jump right into some questions? Well, I think we and and not to start out on um, a challenging mode, but I think we all need to to acknowledge that this is a really interesting time in Mich- in EMS, not only in Michigan but nationally. And you know, it's it's we we attribute a lot of it to the uh, pandemic activities and the pandemic response. Uh, there were a lot of things that that led up to that, and. Um, We've, we provide an unbelievably valuable service to the community. We need to work on improving the community's understanding and awareness of that. But, and, and this is sort of one of my big things. We're, we're doing a lot better than we did in the past, but the EMS community really needs to come together as a community and figure out ways that, that all of the stakeholders can address the things that we're facing. You know, it, it's really an exciting time. EMS has a much more integral role right now than it did before the pandemic. And we just need to capitalize that and uh, make it happen. That is actually a, a really good point. And I'm glad you kind of jumped right into that. So you have penned a farewell letter prior to your retirement from NHTSA. And in that, and I'm quoting directly from your letter, you say, sometimes, like many families, the EMS community has spent more time arguing amongst ourselves than finding common ground. Is that what you were referring to? Um, it was, yes. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because here in Michigan, I, I think you're right. You know, we are a um, for lack of a better way to describe it, a segregated EMS community, we have the fire-based EMS community, and then we have the for-profit, non-profit, private EMS community. And in between there, uh, we have municipally owned or municipal authorities that can kind of flow back and forth depending on what the issue is. What would be some of your suggestions for helping us bridge those gaps and bringing that community together more fluidly? Well, I think we really need to focus on 
our mission and our goals and what all of the various stakeholder community issues are in common and really focus on promoting the commonality and how we want EMS to move forward rather than spending a lot of time focusing on the uniqueness and the differences between the various stakeholder groups and emphasizing those. That's an absolutely key point. And I think, you know, for those regular listeners of the Moz Monthly podcast, I think they've seen some great examples of those communities coming together over the last couple of years, particularly as we worked through the challenges of the pandemic that you've already mentioned. The challenges of reimbursement plague an EMS agency regardless of your ownership type. How do you see or do you see any potential changes in the reimbursement structure of EMS that can further assist us in really professionalizing the industry? You know, it's it's interesting that we're picking up on reimbursement initially because that's one of my pet peeves. And it's also one of the things that I need to be very careful about addressing. One of the the things that I discovered very quickly when I moved to the office of EMS at NHTSA is that there is a significant misperception among the EMS community in general that EMS is reimbursed based primarily on transportation with some variations depending on the level of service provided. But the reimbursement is based on a transportation model because the de facto office, lead office of EMS at the federal level is in the Department of Transportation. Those are two totally separate issues. You know, if we if we have time, we can talk about the history of the Department of EMS or the Department of Transportation being uh, involved in EMS. But the the transportation basis for reimbursement is based on CMS's authorizations, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, authorizations that go back 50 years when when the precursor to CMS started reimbursing ambulance agencies for their care based on transportation. That was based on the authorizations that Congress provided them. And neither Congress nor CMS have gone back in a conscientious manner to try and modify those authorizations. So, you know, when when the pandemic started uh, in early 2020, we met very aggressively with representatives of CMS because that was the time when the ET3 model was starting to be rolled out. And we said, the ET3 model is the right model And it's got to be implemented nationwide because of this pandemic, not limited to 200 plus pilot sites. The the constraints that CMS reflected is their authorizations do not allow them currently to change the overall reimbursement model. So for that to happen at the federal level, it's, it's incumbent, quite honestly, right now on the EMS community, the, the field clinicians and uh, national associations, the association 
um, organizations, you know, MOS, AAA, the IAFC, we all collectively have to go to Congress and say, this is an outdated by at least 30 years, if not 50, model for reimbursement. And Congress has to tell CMS through changes in CMS's authorization that this has to be fixed. Why do you think that hasn't happened? Oh, I think it's multifactorial. I think quite honestly, and I'm editorializing here, this is Kramer's opinion. This, it doesn't reflect the opinion of any of my former employers. Uh, it's too much of a hassle for CMS to go back and try and initiate that change on their own. They have too many other things related to the entire healthcare community that need to be addressed, that, that this is really a, a, a very small piece of their responsibilities. So there's not a lot of interest on the part of, of CMS or quite honestly, uh, HHS in general to try and initiate it. I think the, it, it has to come from the Congress and it has to be something that Congress needs to initiate the way our government is set up. They need to get the executive branch to buy off on it because it's part of the executive branch budget. But I, I have, and I've shared this comment with, with CMS representatives and with a lot of EMS community representatives, you know, we, we have been able to convince the private healthcare industry that there are advantages to reimburse for care outside of the transportation basis. And I'm firmly convinced that as the private healthcare industry realizes the advantages of treat and no transport, treat and transport to alternate care destinations and things like that, they're going to ultimately embarrass CMS into having to realize that that's the, the case. But right now, the community needs to be very aggressive in approaching their congressional representatives. And, and this is where it, it, the community has to get together. The private ambulance industry it has to be providing the same message to Congress that the fire-based industry is providing. And the volunteer community has to have the same guts message to Congress so that they're not getting disparate messages from one stakeholder community versus another stakeholder community. We, we really need to do this together. You had talked about how ET3 uh, may have helped and hopefully will help as it is implemented post-pandemic in assisting demonstrate the value of EMS and the healthcare provided by the EMS community, not just from a transportation perspective. Do you feel that now that cost data collection among EMS agencies is coming back into swing out, out of the pandemic, the MedPAC report that must be you know, is due to Congress in 2024 now, I believe. What role do you think those items play in helping shape this message to revamp this outdated payment system? Oh, I, th I think they're going to help significantly. Having said that, it's our responsibility as the EMS community to make sure that all of the information that's provided is put in the appropriate context. 
I don't want to be overly critical of, well, any federal agency because I'm a recovering bureaucrat, but oftentimes what gets generated in federal reports doesn't always reflect real world issues. And, and I say that being careful because I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that anybody is trying to hide anything, but you present things in the perspective from which you come. And that's why the community needs to make sure that the perspective that's provided reflects real world activities. I'm going to actually use this opportunity to transition to what was one of your priorities uh, during your time in the office of EMS, and that is the improvement in the collection and use of data in the EMS system and the expansion of NEMSYS. How do you see data playing a role in this larger issue that we're facing? Oh, data is absolutely critical. Um, and, and again, I'll reflect uh, one of the challenges that we were faced with with NEMSYS in the office of EMS, there, uh, there historically has been a lot of concern, and I understand that, from the EMS community and from state EMS offices about sharing local and state level data to the federal level. Because of that, NEMSIS has historically been prohibited in some of the information that it receives from uh, state-level EMS offices out of fear that it will reflect negatively in local and state EMS activities. That's a very political way of saying that states would only share with NEMSIS uh, limited amounts of information. And candidly, uh, for many years, the information that was shared was different from state A to state B, to state C. The states have recognized over the last five or so years that NEMSIS is really designed to collect data and provide information about EMS nationwide. And there's not a goal to pick on an individual state and say, you know, Michigan isn't doing this as well as Montana is doing or vice versa. And that's not the goal. One of the, the critical things about the data is that it will allow states the opportunity to benchmark themselves against their peers without pitting one state against another. NEMSIS is, is working very aggressively and the states have been very receptive about being able to collect more local level data. And I wanna emphasize that this data is, it doesn't contain PII or protected health information. It is de-identified, um, but NHTSA uh, will now have the ability to look more closely at what intrastate regions are doing. Um, and, and that will help us. When, when we first got into the pandemic, there were questions that were coming at the national level about um, how many EMS agencies are there and what is the level of care provided throughout states and what is your current stash 
or cash of PPE and medications and those types of things. And EMS, contrary to other components of the healthcare system, had no ability to collect and provide that data. That doesn't bode well for us with other federal agencies when we've got to figure out what is the level of PPE that we need to appropriately protect our clinicians. We have to be able to look more closely at what EMS services are being provided, what issues are tied in with the ability to provide those services. You know, for example, with the, the medication shortage right now, we don't have a good way of providing how much Epi, one to 10,000, is used by EMS around the country. We're getting there, but those are the critical things that we need to provide as a discipline throughout um, our response activities. And the only way we can do that was with appropriate data. That kind of filled in a lot of holes, at least for me personally. Let's switch gears a little bit. And I know data will still play a key role, but let's talk about the work that you did on EMS Agenda 2050 and where you see EMS going forward um, throughout the agenda now. Inherently, you know, the EMS Agenda 2050 is really about a people-centered vision for EMS. How would you describe Agenda 2050 right now? Well, you you hit on the the core component of that. It it really is people centered. Um, what what we found when we developed the agenda uh, for the future project in 1996, and again that was a landmark document that that was just phenomenal. The agenda for the future focused on the patient, and it focused on where we are now in, in the various components, and I think it listed 15 uh, component attributes to EMS. It focused on where we were at that time, where we wanted to be in 20 years, and what we needed to do to get there. But it was all focused on uh, appropriate care of the patient. What we have realized in the time interval between uh, the original agenda and agenda 2050 is that we need to continue focusing on patients. That's a critical component. It's, you know, essentially what we're all about. But we also need to pay attention to the patient's family and the patient's community. And very importantly, on our personnel, on our clinicians the folks that uh, provide support for the clinicians, uh, administrators and, and operational managers and things like that. But it was more than just the patient. So that's why this document focused on people-centered because we wanted to make sure that not only did we address the patient, but we paid attention to the needs of the patient's family, to the community in general, and to our EMS uh, clinicians and staff. The other thing that we found with the agenda, and I'll be very brief here, um, is that with the rapidity that technology and science is changing, 
we couldn't predict with any reasonable expectation what the clinical care would be like in 2050. So that's why the, the team that worked on this with input from the community, you know, had the vision to focus on the guiding principles, the six guiding principles that are part of the agenda. You know, it's, it's inherently safe and effective. It's integrated with the rest of the healthcare community. And I would suggest beyond the healthcare community. It's socially equitable. It's prepared. It's sustainable looking at financial issues and adaptive and innovative because we have to address the rapidly changing healthcare and, and public safety uh, communities. So it's, it's people-centered because it goes beyond just the patient and uh, it's principle-based because as we move forward, we need to pay attention to these six guiding principles and make sure that we uh, continue to carry those to the forefront. So Dr. Kramer, if I was to kind of piece together the key components of your work um, throughout your federal service, there is some commonalities there. The work that you have focused on, the EMS Agenda 2050, everything is people-centered, data-driven, and integral to a community involvement in the healthcare continuum. All parts of the community must come together, as you just said, to in order to improve the healthcare of community citizens. Did I characterize your work during your service properly? I greatly appreciate that characterization because I think that nicely summarizes it. I mean, the, the, the thing that is interesting about the NHTSA Office of EMS, and remind me to circle back to other other federal agencies that are involved in EMS as well. But the, the thing that is most at the forefront of everybody in the office of EMS, because most of those folks came from and, and actually still have uh, EMS practice as part of their non-office hours activities, if you will. I mean, we, we have folks in the office that still function actively in fire departments that are uh, functioning clinical as EMTs and paramedics. And uh, in my case, I was still functioning as an EMS medical director. The folks in the office of EMS are, are really looking at what needs to be done for EMS in the community. Obviously there is, is a federal bureaucratic background to what we do, they now do. But it really was, was with the goal of making the life of the EMS community throughout the country better. Uh, it, it wasn't with the goal of trying to be federal bureaucrats that, that um, made things uh, more complicated or, or logistically more difficult. You know, I, I will reflect that I think that is also the framework from which the other uh, federal agencies that are involved in EMS come from. You know, the U.S. Fire Administration with uh, many of their training programs and their programs to support fire service EMS. Rick Patrick's office is staffed by EMS clinicians who know what it's like and, and their goal 
is to provide resources and, and make things easier for the community. Uh, the EMS for Children's program in HRSA does a phenomenal job of supporting EMS, pediatric EMS issues. You know, we need to understand that their responsibility also extends beyond EMS into other components of the healthcare system focusing on pediatric care. But I think that there is, there historically has been hesitancy about this federal bureaucratic existence that, that gets in the way of EMS. And one of the things I tried to do, and I think I was a little bit successful at it, is to convince folks that, that our job at the federal level is to figure out ways that we can make life easier for those who are taking care of patients on a day-to-day -day basis. I appreciate those statements. And I think it's, it is very important for our listeners to know that there was a focus, there was attention on ensuring that the people working, as you put in a in this bureaucratic setting, do still currently in, in a lot of instances have boots on the ground. They do see and experience what EMS practitioners are experiencing as they go to work every single day. They're not just sitting in a cube in an office um, behind a desk, well, now behind their computers at home federally, and they are still involved. I do want to point out that I believe our state uh, Office of EMS is making a very concerted effort to do the same. And I agree with you. I think that's important for those that are regulating uh, the industry to to really know what is happening on the ground. Yeah, I do I mean, want to go ahead. If, if I could just very quickly, I, I agree with your comment about Michigan. You know, one of the things that I learned at the federal level is the differences in activities at state levels. And that's as a result of funding, it's as a result of staffing, it's, it's multifactorial, but EMS has, has always been uh, very well positioned to, to do things aggressively and appropriately. You know, the, the challenge that state bureaucrats are faced with and federal bureaucrats are faced with is when we look at things, we have to look at it from the whole of the state or the whole of the, the nation perspective. And sometimes that can present challenges to local agencies. The scope of practice activities, I think, have, have progressed very, very nicely. Having said that, there are, are some agencies in some states that feel very strongly that the scope of practice update didn't go far enough. There are some areas that felt that eh, I'm not sure we can do that. And why did you incorporate that? So, you know, th there is an inherent need to look at it from a whole of nation or whole of state perspective that sometimes does challenge local agencies or local medical control authorities. Dr. Kramer, I don't want to let you off the hook with circling back to other federal agencies that are involved in the EMS system, because I think that's something that not everybody is aware of. Could you fill us in on whom else worked with you directly on EMS-related issues? Oh, certainly. Our, the Office of EMS was responsible both for EMS and was the National 911 Program Office. So we had a lot of activities that were specifically focused on 911 activities. In terms of that, 
um, the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission are actively involved in 911 because of their involvement in overall communications activities. A lot of EMS agencies or EMS organizations also were involved in uh, 911 activities. On the EMS side, the Office of EMS had a very close working relationship that really expanded during the pandemic with Health and Human Services, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR. The Office of EMS tended to focus on day-to-day EMS activities. ASPR focused primarily on preparedness and disaster response activities. But as everybody is well aware, if the day-to-day infrastructure isn't well-supported, the disaster response infrastructure won't be well supported. So we worked very, very closely with ASPR who focused on the the preparedness and disaster response activities. FEMA, because of their role in uh, disaster response, uh, was also an agency that we worked very closely with, primarily through the ESF aid activities but through other FEMA response activities as well. HHS, we've touched on on CMS because of their reimbursement responsibilities. HRSA, um, with the EMS for Children's program, we worked very, very closely on. And and quite honestly, most of the Office of EMS-sponsored national activities, the scope of practice, the Agenda 2050 project, the um, EMS clinical guidelines project were co-sponsored by the EMS for children's activities. They contributed uh, both staff support and significant financial support for those activities. The, the uh, well, there are actually two other agencies. The other HHS agency, is the Office for Rural Healthcare Policy, which has a very active rural EMS flex program. Um, we, we worked closely with them, but quite honestly, our engagement with them had been increasing over the last several years. And then the other uh, federal agency that's involved in EMS activities is the Department of Homeland Security. Um, the agency that I first worked with when I went out to Washington. What was originally the Office of Health Affairs transitioned to uh, another agency within DHS, and they have recently now transitioned to the Office of Health Security. Now, their office is focused primarily on intra-DHS activities, But because of the involvement that so many of the DHS components have, Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Secret Service, TSA, because of the engagement that those components have with the community, there are a lot of interfaces between local EMS agencies and systems and particularly Customs and Border Protection. So there's there's a lot of overlap Uh, with DHS as well. I'm probably forgetting, well, and then there are other federal agencies that provide operational DHS or operational EMS components, the United States Coast Guard, uh, very aggressively, and they work uh, with a lot of 
local EMS agencies. Uh, the Forest Service and the National Park Service work very closely with local EMS agencies. Most of those are from an operational providing clinical care perspective and less from a policy perspective. But um, there are, I, I know I'm forgetting some because there are about 15 federal agencies that have operational activities that uh, potentially interface with local EMS. That's a much more extensive list than I was uh, anticipating. So I really appreciate you kind of walking through all of those and their responsibilities and interactions and interface that they have with their local EMS um, agencies and, and local jurisdictions. Certainly. I want to switch gears now. You and I briefly met uh, about a project that you are currently working on, honestly, that I didn't know existed, and that's the National EMS Museum. As I have dug a little bit further, the, it looks like the museum was born sometime in the fall of 2006, knowing that a lot of practitioners have, for the most part, little museums within their own personal collections, and the idea was to really represent EMS on a national level. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the National EMS Museum now? I'd be happy to. Uh, Actually, it's it's still relatively new. I've been involved in uh, museum activities since uh, I retired. So starting in late January, early February of this year, I had known about the museum for a long time. The, The history actually goes back even before the, the current iteration of the National EMS Museum. There was a museum in Roanoke, Virginia, to the rescue. That was um, a, a bricks and mortar museum that existed for a number of years that very nicely reflected uh, the history of EMS and um, is where the, the Tree of Life actually started. For a number of reasons that uh, initiative wasn't able to continue, and a number of volunteers in yeah, 2006, 2007, then started the National EMS Museum Initiative. It is um, it's something that, that I have become much more passionate about as I have learned. Um, and the first question that comes up when you talk about the National EMS Museum is, yeah, I've, I've heard about that, or no, I haven't heard about that. Where is it located? And currently, there is not a uh, physical location as there was in Roanoke. It is, it is very much uh, both a virtual and a um, location-based uh, initiative right now. We have uh, a lot of resources that are available on the website. We have periodically... Uh, set up displays in uh, various areas of the country. Uh, We recently closed a display that was at the Mid-Ohio Fire Museum in Columbus that highlighted many of the historical aspects of EMS. We are, unfortunately, the, the pandemic as it affected many things, affected the ability of the the museum to continue some of his activities. We are now very much in a phase of promotion, looking to increase membership. We're looking to increase sponsorship. Uh, And we have a really neat project that we're in the process of 
uh, developing and looking for sponsorship on. It is a traveling uh, museum that will be in the form of a roughly 50 foot trailer that uh, will be outfitted reflecting the, the not only the history of EMS, but current EMS activities and things like the Agenda 2050 project. The, the trailer, we actually have the displays already designed. It's a matter of getting the funding to support the uh, outfitting of the trailer, which will then travel around the country. The, the plan is that we would have it on the road at a minimum 35, 36 weeks a year that could participate at the EMS Expo in Michigan and Indiana and Ohio. It could go to EMS Day in Lansing when you have that. It could be displayed as part of uh, educational programs. And, you know, if if, and I'm not picking on any particular agency, but if Marquette EMS wanted to put the display up in a parking lot at Marquette General, it could be there. And, and we hope to use that as a mechanism, not only to educate the community about the critical role that EMS plays in their community, but to highlight our history, to talk about what we're doing now, to use it as a recruitment and retention tool to try and get folks interested in careers in EMS. And, and I think quite honestly, it will serve an extremely valuable role as a morale booster to those who are in EMS now, because it's going to bring EMS uh, physically and visually out into the community in a way that we haven't been able to do before. So we're, we're in the process now of, of uh, reaching out to organizations and entities to seek sponsorship. So I know that's a, a very self-serving promotion, but you'll see more about this uh, traveling trailer and the National EMS Museum in the, the coming months. It, it, we have, uh, we currently have caches of uh, collection material stored in three different places in the country. And we're working very hard to bring all of those together so that we can uh, update the inventory and then start uh, getting, getting a lot of these things out to the community again. Thank you for giving us that overview. One um, particular component that I'm really excited about um, with the with the coming traveling um, exhibition is the ability to use it for educational purpose for our policymakers as well. You mentioned bringing it to Lansing for EMS Day um, on the Hill, but I, I do think that having an exhibit like this that can travel to Lansing on a particular day to help educate not only current providers, potentially future providers, but also those that are heavily involved in the policy surrounding the industry as well will be extremely beneficial down the road, kind of on a long-term play. No question. And, um, you know, the, the current plan is uh, we have a, an operational plan 
uh, for five years of this. Quite honestly, if we can involve a number, uh, enough folks, there's no reason that we need to have just one trailer. We could have a trailer in the Midwest and a trailer in the Southeast and a trailer out West. Um, and I'm firmly convinced that we can identify sites to display this to easily occupy, you know, 35, 36 weeks a year. Without a doubt in my mind as well. And I'm going to um, kind of add on to your um, plug there and I will take the reins for you. Anybody interested in becoming a member of the National EMS Museum or contributing to the project should go to emsmuseum.org and join, renew, contribute immediately. All links and information about the National EMS Museum will be in today's show notes. Thank you Dr. so much. I mean, I, it is, there, there are various levels of membership that are, are outlined on the, the website. I mean, I, I gotta be honest, the basic membership for most EMS clinicians is $20 a year. And I, Got to be honest and say, folks, from my perspective, this is a no-brainer. You know, we have 1.3 million uh, EMS clinicians roughly in the country. Now, not all of them are clinically active right now, but, you know, it's, it's not an expensive endeavor to support and your, your dollars will be immensely helpful and it would be great if you know we could reflect that we have a uh, hundred thousand clinician members that that would be wonderful that would be exceptional absolutely exceptional uh, maz is uh, also a member of the national ems museum so we are really excited to continue our partnership with you on that and the um, traveling exhibit dr kramer we are kind of coming to a coming to an end of our allotted time here, but I do want to make sure you have the opportunity to provide some closing remarks. What are your thoughts about EMS going forward? How do you see yourself um, continuing to be involved in the profession? And what, if anything, would you like our listeners to know? And that's a very broad question and it's intentionally broad. You have the, you have the full gamut to utilize. Oh, man. Well, first and foremost, uh, thank you for the opportunity to join you. This is, these are fun things to do. I, I like meeting with the EMS community. Uh, I am officially retired, but I'm enough of an EMS geek that I hope to not totally disappear. I'm, I'm hopefully going to be doing some things with the uh, emergency medicine residencies and their EMS programs in both Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. You know, I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer phone calls of questions if folks have other questions or uh, are interested in uh, particular activities, please feel free to reach out to me. I, th I think this is, and as I mentioned, an unbelievably exciting time for EMS. There are challenges, no doubt, and we've got to figure out how we work on them collectively. I think in, in terms of a parting shot, I came across a, a phrase uh, a number of years ago that I've started to include in uh, many presentations. And I think it reflects what we're all about in EMS. The phrase is, some people spend their whole life wondering, 
did I make a difference? Some people don't need to wonder. And that's where we are in the EMS community. There is no doubt that we make a difference and we don't need to really wonder about that. The, the work that folks in the EMS community do is, is critical, it is valuable, and you all need to be complimented on what you do. Thank you all very much. Dr. John Kramer, thank you. I don't think we could have had better closing, uh, I was going to say closing arguments, but we're not in a courtroom today. I don't think you could have summed up uh, EMS any better. Um, I appreciate you being here with us, and we look forward to seeing you very soon. Angela, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.